Hi, this is Zoe Routh, your host of the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. I'm a Canadian-Australian and a leadership expert who specializes in the people stuff. I work with CEOs and their teams on building great culture so they can deliver on a solid strategy. I love this work. And you know who else does too? Rachel Robertson. She is my guest today and she is a superstar. She's got a very fascinating story. She was the 58th Australian National Antarctic Research Expedition leader to Davis Station. So she ended up in Antarctica for 18 months, an 18-month assignment. So imagine yourself down in Antarctica with 18 people through the long, cold, dark winter. That's 24 hours of darkness. And then through the summer, we have 24 hours of light, all with the very same people. You can imagine that people might start to get on your nerves. So Rachel discovered that was indeed the case. And she discovered some key strategies as a leader that she needed to implement from the outset to keep the team together and not tearing their throats out. <laughs> as you can imagine, there's some wonderful tips. And uh, all of these are applicable to leaders every day in any situation. This is a remarkable interview. She's a great interviewee. She's written two wonderful books, and I'm so excited to bring her to you. So let's do it. Rachel, I am so excited to talk with you today. As I mentioned to you previously, I've been so looking forward to this. I love your experience and your background. I love your take on leadership. And I'm really anticipating great conversation about diving into some really crazy people stuff that you've experienced and have great insights with. So welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I think we'll have a fun bit of time with us. I think, uh, yeah, a few laughs and a few interesting conversations coming up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you probably need a really good sense of humor for the big expedition that you did some, like, how many years ago is it now? 16 years ago? Yeah. Yep. 16 years ago when you went to the Antarctic as expedition leader, which is, wow, a crazy adventure, a crazy adventure. And one of the things you wrote in your first book, which is Leading on the Edge, you said, you need to understand the game and play your hand carefully. What did you mean by that? Like, what's that all about? Yeah, that was about the whole getting down to Antarctica. And because it was all accidental, like I, I never intended to get to Antarctica at all. And I, I saw the job advertised in a newspaper and what intrigued me was the fact that the Antarctic Division, so that's the employer, they recruit for personal qualities and attributes. So they, they recruit for integrity, resilience and empathy. You don't need to know a thing about Antarctica, but you need to demonstrate those qualities. And I just thought what a brilliant way to recruit. That's a fantastic way to recruit, to get people who've got the skills that you need for the job and then you can teach them the technical aspects and I I knew nothing about Antarctica I don't I don't <laughs> ski I don't I don't like the cold I knew nothing but my um my fiendish plan was just to get to the interview stage and, and copy their questions and you know that was my plan I'll get to the interview I'll, I'll find out what questions they're asking and I'll copy them and bring them back to my my company um what I now know that I didn't know then is they don't actually have an interview for this this role. They have a week-long boot camp in the central highlands of Tasmania. So I end up in this boot camp with 13 men competing for a job I didn't particularly want. And then they uh, they rang me and offered offered it to me. And I thought, you know what, I'd rather regret what I did than regret what I didn't do. And so the playing the cards bit was I knew I had the capability to do it, but I just didn't have the confidence. And, and I, I had to keep coming back to the fact 
that this Antarctic division, I was the 58th expedition, so they had recruited 58 leaders before me and they knew what they were doing. And so whenever I had those moments of self-doubt where I thought, I think I've just lucked onto this, I really do think they've made a big mistake, I'd have to say, no, you, you have got the skills because it was, it was for a week. They saw you really vulnerable, really, we were tired, we were physically tired, we were emotionally tired, they really worked us hard and they know what they're looking for. And, and I, said to, I sort of had to have this mentality that if I'm not the right person for the job, then great, because it's not the kind of place you want to sort of fake your way into and get stuck down there for a year. So I had to just trust the process and say, well, these guys know what they're doing. And then, yeah, it was just <laughs> that I had to tell my family I was moving overseas for work. <laughs> oh, fairly far overseas too. You and 13 guys, so there were no other women who applied. Or it got to that stage. Yeah, so it's a oh, it's a kind of a chicken or egg scenario because the um, most of the positions down there are trades related and generally like the trades. So the, we have electricians, carpenters, diesel mechanics, um, and just because generally in Australia and and, in, and science as well are both male dominated fields, we tend to get a male dominated group of applicants. And I think that's the same with the leader role. I think one of the um, the big challenges with the station leader role is it's an 18-month term and for anyone who's got you know, a partner or children, it's a big decision to actually leave. I guess it is for anyone. It's a big decision for anyone to leave and go go down there for a year. But for the leader, it's, it's longer because we have to arrive earlier for our training and we also have to have a debrief at the end for one month in Hobart. One month debrief? Yeah. How's that? Yeah. So one month we... we oh <laughs> We sit with head office and we report back. And even that was fascinating because I picked up things that had never been picked up before. And I so things like, and it's fascinating with coronavirus actually, that I picked up a lot of impacts on our, on, on our body. So physiological impacts like um, the fact viruses can't live down there so, or, or won't survive down there. So we're really healthy. But when we get back to Australia, I had a cough for six months and it wasn't that I was sick. It was my immune system had been repressed for 12 months and so it's building itself back up. And we got a lot of blood noses because the cold, you know, froze the, the inside of your nose and your, your sinuses and, oh, static shock every time you touch something. But there are all these what? impacts. What is the static shock about? What's <laughs> it's that? The, the changing atmosphere from going outside to, to, a, to inside, to the heated inside from, you know, minus 35 to 18 degrees. And it was all these bizarre sort of impacts on your body and, and you know sleeping hard to sleep 24 hours of daylight and 24 hours of darkness and when I brought that up in the debrief it was sort of like this oh we haven't heard that before and I, I to this day I don't know whether it's because I don't know people returning just want to get it back on with their life so they just want to go through the minimum we have to do in the debrief and just get back to it or what I think it's more likely is it's a very it's a very male culture and a very macho sort of tough culture and so admitting any kind of body impacts or physiological impacts might be seen as kind of soft and I just thought wow you know people should know going in that there is an impact on your body when you live at those temperatures for a year it will impact your body and and just give them some information so when it's happening you're like you're not sort of like oh gosh why am I always getting blood noses or what's wrong with me? And I think, yeah, so it was the debrief was actually fascinating, but I probably got more out of it than the um, Antarctic division, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, that's yeah, fascinating. So you went down there, you were selected for integrity, resilience and empathy. So these really core leadership skills and attributes. 
Now, it's a pressure cooker kind of experience down there. What was the biggest thing you learned about leadership while you were there? Probably in terms of, or I'll do leadership instead of teamwork. Yeah, leadership, it was around, the biggest lesson was around how to be an inspiring leader. And it blew me away because my performance review at the end of the year, my performance review is actually conducted by a psychologist who meets privately with each of my 17 people and and gives feedback on my performance. So it's brutal. Like I've never had third party performance reviews before where, you know, usually it's you and your boss sitting there and talking, but um, this was a third party. And so it was frank and fearless. And she sat with me then and, and told me what they had said. And I said, right, you know, hit me, hit me with it. What they say. And she said, they found you really inspiring. And I said, right, what's that? Because I don't think I'm naturally inspiring. I said, is it because I work 16-hour days in summer? Nope. Is it because uh, how I handled the, we had a plane crash, how I handled the search and rescue? No. Is it, um, I had this masterpiece of an Excel spreadsheet for my rosters? No. (laughs) That's so inspiring. Show me the roster. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm thinking, they're the things that I thought I did really well. Like for me, as the leader, they were the three things that I thought I'd mastered. And I was talking to the psychologist and I said, you know, all this thing. And she said, uh, no, she said, um, what was the feedback? She said, Alan mentioned that he was on kitchen duty one night and he was mopping the floors at eight o'clock at night and you came in to get a cup of tea and you put the chairs on the table to help him out. You didn't talk to him, you just helped him out. And Sharon mentioned that you knew the name and hometown of all 120 people on your station over summer. And Patrick mentioned that his son had a school concert. And the next morning when you saw him, you said, oh, Patrick, did you call home last night? How was Lockie's concert? And I was gobsmacked. I'm like, really? You know, really? So I didn't have to work 16-hour days. But what it taught me was that my team didn't rate me as a leader for the big stuff. It was the the moments. And as the, the wonderful Maya Angelou says, people don't remember what you say, they say or do. They remember how you make them feel. And that's exactly what it was. So my team didn't say I was an inspiring leader because I led a search and rescue or I had a you know fantastic um, spreadsheet or even the fact I maintained the health and safety of the team for the year because they figured that's my job. What stood out to them were these little moments and, and it blew me away because I always thought to be an inspiring leader was personality. You needed to be an extrovert and I'm an introvert so I thought you needed to be this Richard Branson, you know, big personality and it taught me that it's not about that. It's about the moments and it's about making people feel valued and so it was the single most important leadership lesson I learned down there. Yeah, it blew me away. It really did. And you've written about that, um, about the power of moments in your second book, uh, Respect Trump's Harmony, and you talk about moments that matter. Now, I'm partial to this concept because I wrote a book called Moments, <laughs> Leadership in the Moments That Matter Most. So I, I want to hear about your take on that. What do you think are the moments that matter most? If you'd asked me this before Antarctica, I would have said the big times. And I still think there's a place for, for you know, you need to lead through a crisis. You need to lead through the big moments. But what Antarctica taught me were the moments of making people feel valued. And it really is that simple. I would have said in the past, yeah, it's about you know, strategic thinking or it's about you know, implementation or taking a, an idea and getting it to market. But what I know now is, yeah, people value leaders who make them feel, feel good and make them, and, and that brings out the best in people and they shine and they'll do anything for you if you make them feel valued. And so it's those little moments. And, the other moments that mattered for us in Antarctica was because it was 12 months of isolation. So it's, you know, 12 months. In, in winter, it's dark 
you know, from February to October, it's boring. It's the same people in the same place all day, every day. So the moments were really important. We would celebrate things like 100 days without a power blackout or 50 days without the server crashing or we celebrated safety targets, you know, 80 days without an injury or something. And that was designed, those moments built momentum. They actually built this sense that we're still achieving, we're still kicking goals, we're still doing really important stuff here because when big things are happening, that's easy to keep your team inspired. It's a lot harder, like now in lockdown, it's a lot harder when it's just the day-to-day sort of operational stuff. And so those moments were so important. Yeah, I I equate those moments to momentum. I think the moments build momentum and they build that sense of, of moving forward because if I'd waited to the end of the year, to say, you know, well done, guys, um, you know, well done. Uh, we got through a whole year without a significant injury. Like, it, that's too late. It's too late. You need, to, you need to find reasons to celebrate along the way. I love that. So I love the fact that both these tips, you know, about making people feel valued and then celebrating the moments and to be an inspiring leader are so accessible, achievable and cheap <laughs> for leaders. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the other thing that blew me away. And oh, I talk to leaders now who'll say to me, um, you know, oh, I don't have a budget for reward and recognition. So it's really hard to keep my team motivated and inspired. And I'm like, gosh, when I was in Antarctica, I didn't even have a, a bottle shop. I couldn't even go and get a bottle of wine and say to someone, here's a bottle of wine. Thanks for your great work. Equally, I, for poor performance, I had no sanctions for poor performance. So I had to manage a whole team of people for a year using only intrinsic measures. So using only you know, free, <laughs> completely free leadership tools that were mostly intrinsic because I couldn't reward them any other way. I had no capacity or ability to reward myself. I couldn't send them to a conference, you know, all the things we typically do when we've got pe- good people and we want to say thank you. I couldn't do any of that. So yeah, it was all free, completely free. <laughs> so just to clarify, so intrinsic motivators or rewards were things like recognition and celebrations or there are Abs- other things as yeah, well? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really good point. That recognition one, I had to tailor that to the person because I had some people like my, my two plumbers who were real extroverts and they loved any kind of you know public affirmation worked with them. So when they did something great, like one day they went out at four o'clock in the morning and fixed one of the pipes that had blocked up so that we could actually have showers in the morning. And the only person who knew they were out there was me because of the safety reasons. And it's pitch black, it's minus 35 degrees. And they came back in and no one would have known they were out there, except that I, I raised that in a meeting. And I said, look, I just want to thank Pat and Dave who went out at four o'clock the other morning to fix the pipes, you know, well done guys. They loved that public acknowledgement and recognition. But I also had a, a young diesel mechanic. And if I had said that about her publicly, she would have been mortified because she was quite a shy person and a quiet achiever. So to publicly do something like that would have just made her feel horrible. So for her, it was a personal um, recognition. So I'd go up to her and say, you know, you did great on that. I'm, I'm really delighted with what you did and keep doing it. And so, yeah, the, the hard part in, in that sort of intrinsic motivation and recognition is under, is matching it to the person and understanding what will resonate the most with that person because not all of us love the employee of the month name on the board <laughs> and then there's others who do. So, you know. I'm, I'm a bit of a gold star person myself. I love getting... <laughs> <laughs> I like getting that. I like getting little trophies, but I'm more extroverted than others. And I think, so your point about knowing your people and it's come through and what you've talking about there is the little moments of, I see you, I hear you, I'm paying attention and I recognize you in the way that you want to be recognized are all messages of 
outward focusing. I'm focused on you, the other people. Going down to Antarctica, right? I mentioned before, it's a pressure cooker. As you said, there's no one else. It's just you and the crew. What did you learn about people when you were there? Yeah, the big thing with my team was, and that's where the book comes from, Respect Trump's Harmony, was understanding the diversity of my team. And before I went, like a lot of people, I I guess I thought of diversity in terms of demographic diversity. So gender or culture or age, generational, but they weren't actually the biggest challenges for me down south. I had such a, a completely different team. And the biggest challenge for me was cognitive diversity. So it was my electrical engineer from Germany with my plumber from Mudgee. And I recognised this on, on our get to know you barbecue. So this is the first day we've met. I didn't recruit them. I just got given his 17 people, turned them into a team. Your life depends on it, by the way. And at our barbecue, we get to know you. The plumber was talking about being in Canada somewhere on a holiday in, in winter. And he said, oh, it was so cold. You put your foot down on a puddle and the water turns to ice under your foot. Mate, it must have been at least minus 21 degrees. My electrical engineer is standing there and he says, well, water freezes at zero. So it must have been at least zero, not at least minus 21 degrees. And I'm like, oh my goodness, these two will kill each other if I don't do something. And so I did, I took them separately and I said to I said to my plumber, look, he's, he's an electrical engineer and he's from Germany. So culturally and professionally, he's from a very exact, precise background. His, his brain requires accurate data and Lord knows we want our engineers to be accurate. But he's not trying to take the mickey. He's not trying to humiliate you. It's just the way he is. I then went to the engineer and I said, look, when you correct someone like that and they're, they're just telling a story, it's, a, it's just a little joke. It doesn't, you know, detail is not that important in a, in a story. And when you correct them, it's a bit humiliating and disrespectful. So just, you know, think about letting it go. And that was the moment where I thought, wow, so respect Trump's harmony. I actually have to say just respect the difference. And that was the biggest learning for me that because I, I knew from that moment we wouldn't always love each other and we wouldn't always like each other and we didn't. Some of them didn't like each other all year. Some of them still don't like each other. <laughs> um, and I just so I had to take that off the table. I had to very publicly take that off the table and say, I do not expect that you will always like each other. I don't expect that you'll love each other I do expect you'll treat each other with respect and so that was the culture of the team and why I did that was I wanted to create a culture where people would would step in and speak up and that was my my biggest fear was someone spiraling with depression or someone exploding with anger because I had no ability to deal with either of those scenarios We, we can't leave Antarctica and I'm I'm in charge and I thought how do I create a culture where we don't have someone exploding with anger and we go oh wow what was that about so everything I did was designed to create this this culture where we would step up and we'd speak up and say, look, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling, let's deal with it as grown-ups, as professionals and put it to bed. Did you have a deliberate intention for that kind of culture before you arrived there or is it something that you picked up on pretty quick that you needed to facilitate? Yeah, good question. No, I'd, I'd never thought about it before and it was it was exactly the latter. It was uh, that moment at... Um, you get to know your barbecue and because we're in training for a couple of months I had some time to think about it and research and think what am I going to do here with this team because we were just so different and, and it wasn't um, the obvious differences it was things like I had two two gay men on my team they weren't a couple they were just gay and I had um, two very conservative religious people who opposed homosexuality oh, wow. and I'm like oh wow 
what am I going to do here? But because we had the culture of respect trumps harmony, it was like, you don't have to agree with me. I don't have to convince you or bring you away around to my way of thinking. I will just respect that that's who you are and that's how you, what you think and that's what you value and that's okay. We don't have to agree on this. And so it took the politics out of it. It took all the emotion of politics because, hey, I don't need to convince you that you're right or, you're, or I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. It just took that out of it. The key tool that we had was no triangles and no triangles is just I don't speak to you about him or you don't speak to me about her. If you have something to say, you go direct to the person, you don't take it to a third party. And that was easy to do. I just got the guys together and I said, look, how are we going to build trust in this team? Tough environment. How do we build trust? Let's have direct conversations. Huh? Put your hand up if you agree. Yep, everyone's hand went up. The next time someone came to me and tried to engage me in one of those, you know, he did that to me conversations, I could say, look, hang on. I saw you put your hand up and commit to no triangles. So why are you talking to me about it? Why aren't you talking to him about it? And how that tool came about, it was that whole um, the um, necessity is the mother of invention thing. It came about because um, one of the guys came up to me early on and he was complaining about someone. He said, oh, did you hear what he said to me? And I said, oh, are you, you telling me, do you want me to speak to him? Is that why you're telling me? And he said, no, I'm, I'm just letting you know. And I said out loud, I said, but if I don't talk to him and you don't talk to him, he's never going to know. And I said, and you and I will have this conversation next week. And then in my head I've gone, oh, we're here for 52 weeks. I'm going to have this conversation 52 times. <laughs> and that's only one of you. There's 17 of you. And I said out loud, let's do this no triangles, hey? Let's have no triangles. Let's have direct conversations. And that was the start of no triangles, which actually has changed my life. But it was just, it was absolute for my own mental health and sanity that I said, no, nah, I, I, I thought I cannot, I cannot live here for a year listening to this kind of moaning, complaining, whinging. It will absolutely destroy me. So I need to create a culture where they directly talk to each other and not keep running to me all the time. I love this principle of no triangles. And when I first heard you speak on stage about this, I thought that's just bloody brilliant. And I've implemented it with my own team. There's three of us. And you'd think we wouldn't have triangles, but it happened. <laughs> oh, and the smaller the team, the harder it is because there's nowhere to hide. That's right. So, you know, in a big multinational <laughs> corporate, you can sort of hide because there's thousands of you in, in any single building. But the other thing, um, interesting thing about no triangles that we've, we've learned recently, and, and I knew this at the time in Antarctica, I knew I needed to spend time with my good people. We all know that. We all know if you want to retain you're good people, you need to value them. As we said earlier, you need to speak to them and value them. But I was so darn tired from the, the triangles. I just didn't have the energy. And I'd, I'd sit there and go, I really know I need to go and speak to, to Zoe and tell her she's doing great. I just don't have the energy. So as soon as I implemented no triangles, I think it freed up probably up to an hour a day for me in time and energy. And that's what we've researched in the, the latest book. And it's fascinating that people, you know, 89% of people who've implemented no triangles have said it's how much time it's freed up and energy. And it's extraordinary to think such a, just a simple thing, a simple tool can actually change your life so much. And, and, you know, I think now if I could do something different in my career, what would it be? And I think I would have done no triangles for myself as a 20 year old and just got this um, vibe that people wouldn't bother whinging. They'd say, I oh, don't bother whinging or complaining to Rachel because she'll just tell you no triangles. So I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. You said earlier that, you know, there's some people who never liked each other on station and still don't like each other now, however many years later. 
What's at the source of that? Was it an incident that happened and they just kept a grudge? What's the source of that continued dislike? I think it was difference. I really do. I think it was diversity and difference and they couldn't see, you know, the difference in the behaviour. And I had to do a lot of that, but what we call root cause analysis, where I do the five whys. Why, 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 to get to the bottom of things. Because often down there, the issue I got presented with wasn't the real issue. That wasn't the issue. But I think with the ones, the guys who didn't like each other, they were just different and it really came down to personality types. So the big extroverts who would walk into a room and and be laughing and joking and look at me, look at me, really irritated the introverts. And yet the introverts who would sort of sit by themselves and and not offer as much to the community, not offer to run the, the trivia night or not offer to you know, host the celebration or actually even commit to, you know, joining the celebration, that really annoyed the extroverts. And I think that personality type was the big clash. And I I tried, I did try to talk to them and explain why they might be annoying each other, that it was just a, a personality type. They weren't actually trying to, you know, annoy you. It's just you're different people, you're different. But yeah, it's a really, it's a really difficult one. But how how I, that one surfaced was um Oh, you've, I know you've heard me, Zoe, talk about the Baker Moor and the, the Baker Moor. I love this it, story. It's great. Oh, and they said to me, you know, we need to have a meeting to decide how to cook the bacon on Monday morning when the chef has the morning off. And, and the rest of the week, the chef cooks. So as every smart person knows, you don't argue with a chef. You, you eat what the chef cooks. And so the rest of the week was fine. But Monday morning, we had to take our own turns at it. And so when they came and said, oh, we need to decide how to cook because the plumbers like it soft and the diesel mechanics like it crispy. And we want to have a meeting so you can decide how it should be cooked. And I'm like, no way. You know, can you imagine stopping a $30 million taxpayer-funded project you know, to have a meeting about bacon as if that wouldn't be on the, the front page of the Murdoch press? Uh, and I said, no, no. And so I didn't have the meeting and nor did I have a meeting about who it was who put the milk jug back in the fridge without milk in it or who left the lint in the clothes dryer or who left the weights on the barbell in the gym. And when I got to the bottom of it, though, I asked, I did the five whys. So like, why? I said, why? Why does it, the bacon bother you? Oh, because they always cook it the way we don't like it. Well, why is that an issue? Oh, because they never listen to us. Why do you say that? Because we've asked them not to throw their tools in the back of the ute because it damages the ute. Why does that bother you? Because it creates more work for us. And so when I got to the bottom of it, I'm like, wow, this is about respect. They're actually feeling disrespected. It's manifested in the bacon, but it's actually an issue where the diesel mechanics are feeling disrespected by the plumbers throwing the tools in the back of the ute and creating more work for them. And so I started to identify all these little things that happen that drive us bonkers, that drive us crazy. And it's not the thing, that's the symptom of a deeper issue and the deeper issue is the lack of respect. And so I make a case now, every time I walk into a new workplace or a new office, I'll go straight to the staff room or the tea room and I'll look for that sign, the sign that says, you know, your mother doesn't work here, put your dishes in the dishwasher. (laughs) (laughs) And and people say, oh, you know, about the the dishes because that's the number one, Bakermore in most workplaces is dirty coffee mugs. And I have to say, look, mate, it's nothing to do with dishes. It's about respect. It's disrespectful. You know, it implies my time's more important than your time. So I'll leave my stuff lying around and you can pick up after me. And that's why these things drive us crazy. That's why people who are always late 
drive us crazy. It's not because, you know, it's five minutes or 10 minutes. It's because it implies my time's more important than your time. And that was a big thing for me to work out because I couldn't work out why little things like, um, oh, I had a team once where we had a suite or a set of, of pool cars. We had a fleet of vehicles that you'd take the car out and bring it back. And we were in a regional area. So that's a significant thing. But people would bring the car back with no petrol in it. And I'm like for years going, come on, guys, you know, if you're going to take the car out, can you bring it back with petrol in it? It was only when I came back from Antarctica and I went back to that team very briefly, I realised that it was never about the petrol. It was about respect because when you bring that car back empty, you're implying your time is more important than the next person because the next person who jumps in the car then has to go and fill it up. And I'm like, oh, wow, I wish I had I wish I had worked this out 15 years ago. So the bacon wars are fascinating and particularly coming out of lockdown and returning to our workplaces, I think it's an absolutely fantastic time for teams to start to reset their values or redefine their rituals and start thinking about the stuff that worked well for us in the past, the stuff that we didn't like that we want to stop and any new stuff that we created during the lockdown. So maybe it's the five o'clock Zoom cocktail parties that I know a lot of teams are having, um, you know, what will we keep for the future? But it's a great time to talk about those bacon wars. It's a great time to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, what were the bacon wars? What are the things that happen in our team that drive us bonkers, that irritate us because they're a symptom of a deeper issue and that deeper issue is a lack of respect? I love that you, you've cottoned on to this. It's the little things that drive you bonkers and at the heart of it is respect. And I agree, the tea room is a very important <laughs> information center for what's going on in the culture. And um, when I was working with my amplifiers group, I said, okay, I want you to think about, A, your tea room, do you have one? <laughs> what's going on in there? Have you got some passive aggressive notes like you mentioned? And then I want you to take a tour into your staff bathroom same thing. What are the <laughs> yes. messages going on in there? Because there's all sorts of crazy, passive aggressive, pedantic things that happen. They signposted in bathrooms and it all comes back to respect, you know? Oh, it's that's brilliant. Yeah, that's brilliant. I had one the other day. It was um, an all staff email. It wasn't the other day, it was before lockdown, obviously, but it was an all staff email that was sent to the whole floor or the whole company, two or three floors, so two or 300 people. And it was about whoever was riding their bike into work and leaving their having a shower in the disabled toilet and then disabled bathroom and then leaving their wet stuff on the floor. Can you not do it? And they've sent this to like 300 people, all staff. <laughs> and to me, that's a baker wall because it's fairly easy to identify who that person would be. Like there would probably be on that particular floor, what, if they've got a hundred people, maybe a dozen tops who are riding their bikes into most people use public transport or they drive in. So I'm thinking it'd be pretty easy to, to narrow it down to who it was and even narrow it down to the people, you know, cycle so that 20 30 40 people and send the email to them do not send the email to the two or three or four or five hundred because that just irritates people and it's like it's a bacon war so i'm thrilled that you're like me we go around and look at signs in bathrooms oh, yeah. it's extraordinary <laughs> eh? it's extraordinary yeah. it's telling it's really it was so funny after that session everybody's kind of like hmm bathrooms kitchen and welcome area it's another classic example of what sets the tone for the culture those three areas in particular are hot spots for the messages oh, that you're yeah. giving out. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. They really are emotional, aren't they? They really are. <laughs> so I think at the heart of like the no triangles piece and about respect requires people to speak up and speak their truth. What do you think stops people from speaking up and speaking their truth? It's the harmony. It's the harmony culture. And I think that's why 
say respect Trump's harmony and, and trust me, I chose that word Trump's very carefully uh, <laughs> given, given the current situation in the world. Um, I just didn't think there was another word that had that nuance that actually said that we want respect and we want harmony, but when it comes down to it, then you choose respect over harmony. And what I mean by that is if the culture is around harmony and keeping the peace and don't rock the boat and isn't it great here, then a few things happen. The first thing is any bullying or harassment, it still goes on. It just, it just goes underground because people don't want to raise it. They don't want to rock the boat. The second problem you have is there's no innovation because people won't offer a difference of opinion or a conflicting view. And that's when you get those meetings where people sit in the meeting and they nod and they nod and they go, yes, yes, yes. And then they walk out and go, that won't work. And you think, well, why didn't you say that at the meeting? And the third problem is um, around safety. And if you focus on harmony, that's when people get hurt. So either physically or mentally, if someone's doing something unsafe, people walk past and turn a blind eye to it. And similarly, mental health, if the focus is harmony and isn't it great here and we're like a big happy family, no one puts their hand up and says, well, actually, I'm not great right now. And it's an illusion. You know, a team, a team built just on harmony, when they're put under pressure, they will shatter under pressure. And I think if you can create the culture of respect, you still want harmony, but Respect is the number one thing where people do speak up. I've got so many examples when I was writing that book of people who kept the peace and they didn't speak. I mean, and, and I guess the other the issue with it is having the skill, having the ability to have that conversation. And the reason it took me, it took me two months to embed no triangles in the culture of our team in Antarctica. And the reason it took so long was I had to coach the guys on how to have the conversation because if I just sort of plonked this no triangles on them, uh, a lot of them had never had any kind of leadership training. They were self-employed tradespeople. So I had to skill them up in how to have the conversation so they wouldn't just, you know, walk up <laughs> and have a go at someone. And, and it took me two months. And one of the tips we had was to um, take out the absolute words. So take out words like everyone, no one, always, never. So my team wouldn't come to me and say, oh, everyone thinks that's a bad idea because I'd challenge it and say, everyone? And they'd say, oh, well, not Rachel or not Zoe. Okay, so it's not everyone. It's you. And similarly, if you say to someone, uh, I need to talk to you because you're always late for work, the minute always is out of your mouth, they'll say, well, yesterday I was 30 minutes early. And then it's a whole emotional, horrible, horrible thing. So you need to deal with facts and say, you are due here at 8.30. Today you arrived at 8.45. That's a fact. We had a conversation last week. You said there's no barrier to you getting to work on time. That's a fact. And deal with the facts and use data and take out the emotion. And that's, you know, to go to your question, that's the other barrier, I think, or the other thing that holds people back from speaking out is the confidence in their own skill and ability to actually have that conversation because it is a skill. It's absolutely a skill. It sounds like you were teaching them a lot of interpersonal skills while you were down there. You know, you, you described having being a mediator between people's behaviors as a translator. You know, it's like they did this and this is the impact <laughs> or you did this and this is the impact. Be careful to do that. And you spent a lot of time explaining to people or showing them how what they did or said had an impact and then having to teach people to have difficult conversations and the skills and process for that. Did you have to teach them some emotional intelligence as well? Because I think my observation of teams uh, under pressure is being aware of your own personal emotional expression or confusion or struggle is really important part of being able to show up and work effectively in a team. Oh, that was a long-winded question. Let me shorten it. <laughs> did you have to teach people emotional intelligence skills? I did. I did. And also um, model 
social intelligence and emotional intelligence skills myself. So I had to be acutely aware of myself. And when, when someone was pushing my buttons or when I was feeling a bit tired, uh, I had to re- remove myself from the situation so that I didn't explode. And so I didn't fall in a heap, but I did, I had to point out where, you know, very gently and using facts and, and in a, in a timely manner where their behavior may have impacted someone that they weren't aware of. And you're right. I, I did spend a lot of time early on and, and I'm, that was a conscious decision. It was not something I expected. Like I'd never done that before in my career and I totally never expected it would be my job. But what I realized was when we're living together 24 seven, so we can't get away from each other. You know, the, the same people you work with all day are at the dinner table when you have dinner and then you might go and watch a movie in the cinema. It's only no, a tiny cinema, but they're in the cinema. And then you think, oh my goodness, I'll, I'll go and play a game pool and they're there. We can't get away from, and so you're everywhere. Oh, they're everywhere. Oh, so you just think of the most difficult person you've ever worked with in your career, and then imagine being with them twenty four hours a day for a year, and you can't escape. And so I was really conscious that it was a workplace. It was absolutely a workplace, but it was also their home. They're at work and at home, and so treading that line between work and home for me was really difficult. But I made a conscious decision that. I would invest that time as the leader in teaching them some of these skills. And I don't like the term soft because I think they're really hard skills, but they're the the communication skills. So teaching them how to have the conversation, teaching them self-awareness, teaching them emotional intelligence, teaching them uh, how their behavior might impact someone else. And I did that front up like in the first three or four months, hoping that that would save my energy because I thought, I just don't think I can lead these people around the clock. And initially I did. So initially I thought, they need me, I'm here, you know, 24-7. And they would knock on my bedroom door at 10 o'clock at night. They'd see the light on on my door and I'd yell out, yeah, and they'd open the door and they'd say, oh, you're reading your book. And I'd say, it's okay, I'll put a jacket on, I'll come out. Because initially I thought, that's my job, I'm the leader. They need me, I'm here. And then after six weeks, I thought, I actually can't do this. I can't be available to them you know, 24 hours a day. I have to rethink how I'm leading this team. And so part of it was my own boundaries and managing my own boundaries and saying, look, when I go to my, my bedroom, that's my private space. So unless it's something urgent, please respect that I need some time on my own. And so I had to manage that boundary, but equally I had to invest in giving the guys the skills so that they could manage each other and and manage themselves so that I wasn't constantly having to manage behavior, but they could do that themselves. And it was worth it. I think in the long run, it took me months, but I think in the long run, it was, it was worth that investment in um, getting a culture and I guess the hardest part of the year but it's just reminded me that the hardest part of the and I haven't written about this in in either book but um, equally my most proud moment was we had someone who was diagnosed with depression over Easter so around April and it was a really tough time because I knew we couldn't get them out so we couldn't get them help that they needed and I also couldn't tell the rest of the team that this person is suffering depression because it was a private matter but they recognized that something was wrong with this guy and they kept inviting him out they kept saying do you want to come and watch Mr Bean in the cinema do you want to come and photograph penguins do you want to come out for a ride on the quad bikes and every time he said no every time because he's suffering depression and he wanted to be on his own in his room and you know which is a a normal state and they kept asking and kept asking and I really think a lot of people after the fifth or sixth time would have said oh I give up you know I've tried but what that tells me was they recognized something was wrong and they wanted to make him feel you're part of our team we want you around we value you and it would be easy if I could write that off as he was the popular one and everyone loved him but this guy actually wasn't he was quite a difficult character quite a prickly sort of personality 
And so what it told me was that they actually did care about him, even though he wasn't particularly their friend. So I thought we must have done something right with the culture of this team that we looked out for each other and we looked after each other and we didn't love each other, you know, and I'm really honest about that. And some of them didn't like each other, but we, we looked out for each other. And so that was my toughest moment without doubt. But for me as a leader, my most proud moment, because I thought we've done something right in the culture in the first six months of this team to create this environment where they care about this guy, where I know a lot of people would have just given up on him. So yeah, it was a tough time. That's really tough. And I think as someone who is caring for others to reach out and try and be of support to someone who's rebuffing you all the time can be heartbreaking as well. Heartbreaking for him and heartbreaking for the people trying. Absolutely. So I have my last question is about you, the leader. And they always say leadership is lonely at the top. And I'm guessing that's absolutely very true when you're in a situation like down in Antarctica where there's no escape and you are on the chopping block for everything. How did you look after yourself? How did you survive that loneliness at the top? Yeah, and it's so true. But ironically, I've actually been more lonely as a leader in a capital city than I ever was in Antarctica. And the only reason I was not lonely in Antarctica was because I met a guy called Graham Cook, who was the station leader at Mawson Station. So I was at Davis Station. He was at Mawson Station. He was about 1,500 kilometres away from me, so I could never see him. We can't move around in winter. But I could pick up the phone and I could say to him, oh, you know, Cookie, they're fighting about who put the milk jug back into the fridge without milk in it. And he'd say, oh, mate, we had that fight last week. You know, this week they're fighting about um, who made up the orange juice concentrate incorrectly. And it was such a relief. That peer support was such a relief to know that there was someone on the end of the phone who got what I was going through. And hand on heart, he was the only person on the planet that knew what I was going through and and vice versa. And we wouldn't reveal, you know, details or confidential things, but we would talk to each other regularly about how you're coping, what do you got going on? And having a third party, sometimes they just had clarity. So I'm trying to resolve an issue and he'd come in as a third party and say, yeah, we had something like that. I did this and I'd do the same for him. And so the only reason I didn't get lonely was that peer support. And I just, I think it's so important to have someone in your corner who understands your job. And I mean, we can come home and talk to family and partners or and I certainly knew down in Antarctica I could not talk to my expedition team I could certainly wouldn't talk to the expeditioners about an issue I didn't want to escalate everything to head office but I needed someone to talk to so the peer support from the other station leader and who knew what I was going through and knew my job and knew the culture and knew the issues oh it was gold peer support is absolutely gold and that's what yeah it kept me sane and laughing for through some of the really tough times. And you don't have that now or or is it easier not to have that now? I do have it now, but I have it with, um, yeah, I have different peers for different reasons who I'll catch up with, you know, professionally and, and chat about, what do you reckon about this? And, and that was a real lesson for me because I'd never had that sort of peer support. I guess being, I was a female in a male-dominated industry my whole career and I was also one of the younger ones. So I was one of Melbourne's first female park rangers and, you know, the youngest chief ranger in Victoria at the time when I was 32. And so I think I might've been, I don't know, I might've been a bit of a threat to some of the, some of my colleagues. So I never had a close peer relationship with any of my senior managers and my colleagues. And so that was a real, and and I didn't feel like I could show that vulnerability either in that position, but with Graham, with the other station leader, it was really easy to say, Oh, I'm struggling with this. And he would do the same and I could offer him insight. 
And so that was the moment I realized, gosh, how important is it to have someone who understands what you're going through and is at your level? So they're not senior to you. They're not junior. They're actually kind of at the level you're at and they get it. They just get it. It was like this relief of, oh, thank goodness someone gets it. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing all that. Any last words for listeners? Oh, I think just as we return to um, out of isolation, I guess the only thing I'd like to say is it's a leadership legacy moment. And I, I mean that in the way that how we handle this as leaders, how we lead our teams back out of isolation in the workplace will leave a lasting impression for a long time. So it is really a leadership legacy moment. And so start to think about how you will lead your team. I know when I came back to Australia, I was absolutely rocked by some of the things that took me unaware, things like noise, so sensory overload, physical contact, uh, choice, uh, busyness, physically having to move from one meeting to the next meeting and the busyness of craziness of life. And the most important thing is some people are sitting here right now, can't wait to get back to the office, can't wait to get back to the routine of heading into the city to go to work. There's other people who are petrified who are absolutely stressing and, and anxious about having to go back to work and there's a whole heap in the middle. So I guess my, my call to leaders today is, is to remember it is a leadership legacy moment and just start putting a little bit of thinking into how are you going to lead your people through the next one, three, six months uh, as we, we enter this brand new horizon where we've never been before. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a really challenging time for leaders. So look out for each other too. Rachel, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. I've just loved talking with you today and sharing your insights and stories. And um, yes, thank you so much. <laughs> absolute pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a fantastic interview. I love Rachel. She's so awesome. And I guess for key takeaways, you can't go past no triangles, obviously. And the second piece is respect trumps harmony. And that whole notion that we need to speak up and show respect, well, speak up so that we can generate and get to what makes respectful interactions is critical. Aside from that, though, I think the other key takeaway for me is how how Rachel as a leader, and I think every leader needs to contend with this, had to translate or teach her team what it meant about their behavior. So she translated their behaviors for one another, explained how what they said or did had an impact on others to showcase perspective. Perspective is really different for everyone, and we need to be mindful of that. And she also taught them essential communication skills, as well as emotional intelligence skills. And I think this is pretty critical for leaders anywhere in any business, is that if you don't have those skills, get them. If your team doesn't have those skills, give it to them, whether you do it yourself or you get an outside professional like me to come in and do it for you. Otherwise, you're going to end up with bacon wars. <laughs> I love it. A shout out to... Um, all the people in Toowoomba, that's where we first met. So Rachel and I met in Toowoomba on stage speaking together at the Big Idea Summit. And I just love the people of Toowoomba. It's a great little city. And it's great to have so many listeners from Toowoomba listening to the podcast as well, especially to Tim. Thanks, Tim, for being part of the community of leaders in my world. And it's great to showcase your business too. You're doing great stuff there. And you've picked up and applied a lot of leadership lessons along the way. Okay, coming up next week on the podcast, we have Stephen Frost. He's a world-leading diversity and inclusion expert, and he has advised the UK and US government and was head of diversity and inclusion for Olympic and Paralympic Games and set up the workplace team at Stonewall. 
It's going to be a great conversation, and I look forward to sharing his insights with you next week. In the meantime, lead well, live well.